Sorry, I'm eating my croissant. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Being an Artist is Fucking, fucking killing, killing Me. I'm Rainy Madison Kearns. I'm Corinne Bisson. <laughs> Took me by surprise. Did it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking about just like taking... My dad, by the way, I forgot to tell you this. During Fringe, somebody had written in the program Rainy Madison and not Rainy Kearns. And my dad just never brought it up to me. He thought I had changed my name. <laughs> And I brought it up to him one time. He was like, yeah, I saw that during like the fringe shows. And I just thought like, maybe she's changed her name and just hasn't told anybody. (laughs) It's like your new stage name. It's my stage name. (laughs) Let me know about your opinions on stage names. Are they still a thing that happens or is it like a very 1950s way of becoming an artist? Right. Rebranding yourself. Rebranding yourself. (laughs) Yeah. It's very interesting. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. We have a show coming up that we are going to keep telling you about. Yes. Telling Giselle mm-hmm. by Patricia Allison, who, by the way, has won a fucking Dora. Yeah. And this show is free? Yes. It's insane. Take the train up to York. Take the train goes day. right there. It's right there. You're so close to it. Yep. Just take it. The Go show's see her free. Show. It's a free fucking show, mate. It's dance theater storytelling through dance it's not just a large movement piece exactly it's free it's free and y'all should go see it email patricia um we will post it on our instagram account her email account and yeah go see the show it's gonna be great support artists support your friends Mm -hmm. don't just post a picture about us on instagram like everyone's doing right now telling us about how much you love you Go to things. Spend your money. Spend your time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, something that we're going to bring up this week, which we've talked about before, is the difference between copying and being inspired by something. Right. Um, it's been bothering us. We've talked about it a couple times. Um, and when you see something and are inspired by it, by it and you want to create something, is it because you're inspired by the work and you want to go to that level of excellence or is it because you just want to make money and create something that's the exact same? Right. What is your motivation right. behind creating a work? Right. right. Exactly. Which like money can be a motivation if you're a producer sure, but and you're wanting to pay the bills. Yeah. I don't know. But I think there's, yeah, there's a difference between looking at something and being like, wow, that's amazing. I want to create something from that. But then either trying to take it a step further, trying to do something different. Also do your research. <laughs> yeah. Because that sometimes there's a specific type of look or work that you're going for. And there's multiple people that, people that do that work. Right. So. Already doing it. Do your research, y'all. And let us know what you think. between yeah. Or have you ever had an experience where you've thought something has been copied when it's been inspired, or tell us your thoughts on it. Right. Also, if you have a different opinion than us, get at us. Please tell us. Love to have a conversation about it. Yeah. It's the only way we learn. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, today we have Laura Simmons, and she's a doll. Yeah. This was a great conversation, and I could listen to her talk about what she does for hours. Yeah. Get the tissues ready, y'all. Oh. <laughs> it's real sad. Here we go. <laughs> My name is Laura Simmons. I started my professional career as an artist and that has evolved over time from being an artist, doing commission work, teaching art classes into a career as an art, an emerging career as an art therapist. (laughs) Uh, So art therapy as a tool for self-expression so using using a therapeutic space but using art for clients using art for a form of self-expression to work through all of the hard things that we go through as humans in life so good this is good coffee Mm. i heard you're so busy what you just got something um yeah i had a little bit of a break Mm -hmm. over the holiday which was nice um, but I'm, I'm volunteering at the, uh, Michael Guerin hospital or mm-hmm. East general. It's just, it got renamed, uh, on Mondays. So I'm there all day Monday, um, just sort of as a learning opportunity and get my foot in the door and with some new experience, mm-hmm. I'm working on the, um, psychiatric 
unit. So in the morning, I'm with the outpatient. Mm-hmm. No, I'm with the day treatment patients. So they're people who mandatory have to come for treatment. They, most of them have had like a psychotic episode and now mm-hmm. it's part of their, their therapy and part of their um, being monitored very closely with their new medications. And mm-hmm. there's people who have diagnoses like schizophrenia, bipolar, and major depressive disorder and things like that. So I get to sit in on the clinical rounds with the chief of psychiatry and just like, wow. it's really cool. It's just one <laughs> of those like really cool things that I got to make happen. Uh-huh. Um, and then in the afternoon they have an art program or like a drop-in art studio. So I'm with, with that. And you're running that or? Yeah. So the first uh, couple months I was just sort of observing everything and getting to know everybody. And now when I go, I'm taking a couple more weeks off. So I'll go back January 21st. Oh, okay. um, and when I go back, I'm going to run a four week art therapy group there for them, which mm. is good. And then I just started again. Uh, yeah. What Tuesday I started again at Sheena's place, which mm-hmm. is, um, I guess, I don't know if I was doing that last time I saw you. I must have been. Um, so it's a place for people with eating disorders. Okay. So I'm doing mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. 10 week art therapy group there for people who is bereavement. So I'm doing the same work I did for my thesis. It's the same group, right. but I'm doing it with adults instead of with kids. Right. Um, and I think you might have answered this to me before, but I'm going to ask you again, if there's a specific, um, if people are suffering from specific illnesses, mm-hmm. so like eating disorders or having a psychiatric mm-hmm. episode, are there different um, artistic practices that you bring in to the room depending on what they're suffering from? Um, yeah. Well, one thing about is interesting about like materials, depending on yeah. who, what the population is. There's certain materials like you wouldn't bring into a room. Like if somebody is suffering from like if self-harm or, or something where there could be a danger to themselves, you're not going to have scissors in the room. So right. you're not going to be having exacto knives in the room. You're not going to mm. having things mm. that probably like are sculptural things like cutting. You're going to be having like, even sometimes, um, I know I have a friend that worked, um, at Youthdale, which is, um, uh, kids, like it's a detention center mm-hmm. almost for kids. And like she couldn't bring them pencils that were longer than a certain, right. because pencils can be dangerous. So it, just, it really, yeah. 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 The population you're working with really depends on what supplies you can use and then also what activities you can use. Okay. Um, but I mean, I just find certain people like certain materials. So I try to have a variety of everything in, in the space that I'm working in. Mm-hmm. What are, are there some main ones that you, you fall, main exercises that you fall into a lot that you really enjoy or you find are most beneficial to them? Um, yeah, I, I try to have things like really open-ended, but I try to structure the, the group in a way. So like we'll do a mind, when I'm working with adults, not with kids necessarily, but like when I'm working with adults, I'll try to do like a mindfulness exercise to start to just ground everybody in the space. Mm-hmm. So I have some of those that I, that are go-tos and I often try to, whatever the mindfulness activity is, then have that as a jumping point into the theme or the art project that we're going to be doing. So have it flow in. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I mean, I have a couple go-to projects, but I, I, I just try to have people realize them with the supplies that they, they want. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that really answers your question. (laughs) No, that's okay. I was just more wondering if they're, I mean, I guess you want to explain what art therapy is maybe first yeah to to everyone so then we can know so then I also know um okay so art art therapy really is a form of um self it's type of therapy that uh uses self-expression um through artwork rather than having to talk or traditional talk therapy. It's still an amazing way of processing thoughts and feelings and emotions, which can be really difficult to access. Um, but using self-expression, using art materials as a form of expression. So uh, it can be really great for all kinds of populations. It can be great for just any any of us, not, not necessarily having to work through a specific issue, but just um, we all have unconscious or things that are going on in our heads on a, on a regular basis and things that may bother us or that we're processing, trying to work through. Um, and I just find artwork, just the process of making a piece of art mm-hmm. can, can help an individual to, 
to process whatever thoughts or feelings are going on. And then sometimes it's a really great way for um, just Mm self-reflection and getting deeper into or rediscovering or for the first time discovering different aspects of your personality, what you like, what you dislike, what's bothering you, Mm -hmm. what you didn't really realize was now coming out on the surface. So, um, like, for example, there's a really great activity that I've used with my bereavement group, and it's just simple. It's um, uh, draw or paint your favorite place. It can be real or imagined. Mm -hmm. And so it's as simple as that, and that it doesn't get more simple as a, as a directive than that. But then I find what comes up. So when you ask somebody about their work, then what they attach to that work and being allowed, like being drawn into what they're processing, it becomes a whole different thing. So this little boy who was in my bereavement group, he started creating a, um, a tree house. But then when he started talking about this treehouse, he started talking about all these stories about him and his dad in the forest and his grandfather in the forest. And it it was just meant to be this really simple treehouse. But then there was so much attached to it because there's all we all have symbolism and we all have different stories that we attach to different images, whether we realize it or not. So that's, that's really how I think art making is... What, what art therapy is and how it can be really helpful and beneficial. Mm-hmm. Just processing all those things that are lying on the surface. Right. Or under the surface. Yeah. I find just by like watching Instagram videos <laughs> and also for myself, painting is extremely calming. Mm-hmm. So I can understand how that would be extremely good mm-hmm. for people who are trying to like relax or find peace in some way. Because I like watch like Instagram videos of people painting and I'm like, <laughs> mesmerized yeah. it's just like the way like the brush is like stroking or how it's like filling in something it's like extremely satisfying well, well that's it yeah. it can be as simple as a mindfulness practice right. which you're just in the moment you're the brush strokes are are soothing uh-huh. You're putting your body into it. You're putting your movement into right. it. You're focusing on one thing at a time. It's the same the same theory as why coloring books work so well. Right. It's because you're right. just in the moment and you're letting go of the thoughts that are racing through your head and you're in the moment and you can focus on a little area and just let your mind wander and just be in that moment. And so any type of artwork can be a mindful practice, mm-hmm. which is therapeutic in itself. Mm-hmm. And then the other side of it is having more of a psychotherapeutic um, role where you're working with a therapist and things that might come up that you're not even realizing are coming up you can then work through those or be aware of those and um, just like regular therapy would happen mm-hmm. um, but the therapist isn't projecting their own ideas of oh you drew this so this means this x means this or y <laughs> means this and it's not a diagnosis right. tool it's Really, whatever the individual is creating will have meaning for themselves, and then they can start to explore that meaning and what that means for themselves, guided by a therapist who will be able to be like supportive and empathetic. And yeah, mm. do you work with people at all who have like physical disabilities? Um, so I mean, like holding a pencil might be challenging for them. Yeah, or you know, doing something more sculptural might be. It's too physical for them. Something. Like that. Um, I don't, but uh, art therapy work with like dementia mm-hmm. and relearning motor skills is a really, um, really big, big um, tool in um, in rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've encountered recently, which this is the first time I've, I've experienced this is, uh, I have a client who is incredibly sensitive to scents. So she can't use certain paints or sharpies or markers or even scents in the room will bother her. So that's a new thing that I'm going to have to navigate is Mm. when I'm thinking of supplies, what can be really, really accessible for someone who not necessarily a physical in the terms of using their hands or sitting in a chair for a long time, but 
the scents that are coming into the room. So it's really interesting because all sensory aspects are right. really come into play. And that's sure. something new that I hadn't really thought about before. And she's probably super hyper aware in terms of smell. Yeah. So even the most subtle scent will get her. Yeah. If, if it's something that bothers her or him. Sorry, I don't know. Yeah. Is. <laughs> I think, and I think even somebody coming in with shampoo. Yeah. Right. Could affect this person. Wow. So, um, yeah, it's really interesting how. Can you get physical... scentless paints or scentless markers or? Um, it's just paper and. Glue. I think it's like water-based markers, as opposed to sharpies, probably wouldn't be mm. a problem. But and like water color paint right. would be accessible, right. whereas acrylic paint, it does. It's, it's not necessarily sure. scented, but it it is a toxic substance. Right. So. Right. Does, can I can I ask a little bit more about this person, this this client? Um, does this do smells bother this person in like a negative way, like they can't deal with them or they can't handle them, or how does they won't be able to be in the room? Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And they, I mean, how do they deal with society yeah. with smells? Like how you mm-hmm. do like on a regular basis, like being out in Toronto stinks sometimes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. actually that's that's the interesting thing about sometimes when I'm in a therapy space things that bother somebody in a room not necessarily a scent or whatever they're coming into the room with maybe it's dealing with other people maybe it's the way they talk to me maybe it's the way they talk to other people the way they interact the way they handle situation the perfectionism of something or the Mm. the anxiety going going in the group sometimes it just makes me realize if just being in a space a safe space like that for a couple hours is such a challenge how hard it must be to leave that space and then go into the world where it's not a safe confined space so yeah, it it makes it it <laughs> sometimes makes me very aware of the challenges that yeah. are faced on doing something yeah. so out of all the senses. The sense of smell seems like such a minor one to me compared to like you know vision. I mean, I guess it depends, mm-hmm. but the sense of smell is is also such a big one because it sends memories to the brain it like mm-hmm. reminds people it, it can be triggering absolutely mm-hmm. and it sure actually weirdly enough jason sudeikis doesn't have a sense of smell like the actor he can't smell anything <laughs> really? no it's a weird fact to know <laughs> no everything <laughs> he doesn't he can't smell anything so like they interesting he constantly talks about like yeah like if i didn't have olivia wilde like <laughs> I could be dead. Like, I wouldn't know if the house was, like, had a gas leak or anything because he wouldn't right. be able to smell wow. it. Wow. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's just, like, with something that he was, like, born with. <laughs> but imagine, like, living your whole life without, like, smelling something. Yeah. Or, like, smelling, like, a nice perfume or, like, knowing what you smell like or... Yeah. <laughs> well, you know? It would affect yeah. your sense of taste, too. Oh, totally. yeah. Yes. Because smell has so much to do with what you... What you're eating the eating experience Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. everything's connected that was my first thought actually i was like oh i wouldn't have been able to smell that chili i made last night (laughs) yeah (laughs) right yeah but then there's also like i'm sure like if you're living in new york i'm sure it's like lovely because you're like not walking down the street in the middle of july and smelling like trash burning you know yeah you'd have to go into a career where you're smelling gross stuff all the time like (laughs) <laughs> like a garbage man. Yeah. You'd be the best garbage <laughs> man. <laughs> if you're listening, you'd be we a have, really good garbage right. man. And we should talk about that career change. <laughs> <laughs> You've missed your calling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Acting? <laughs> Who wants to be an actor? <laughs> yeah. You could um, be a nanny and change so many gross diapers. Oh, it'd be amazing. <laughs> do they have kids? They do have kids. Oh, what? Yeah, two Maybe. kids. Maybe she passes all that off. Oh, yeah, I would. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I would. Yeah. She's no dummy. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> Olivia, a while. We should talk about how you got into art therapy. Yes. And that transition in yeah. your life. So you went to school in Ottawa? Yeah, I yes. went to the University of Ottawa mm-hmm. um, out of high school. And I did my Bachelor of Fine Arts degree there. So I specialized in painting and old school darkroom photography. Um, So that was a four-year program and very studio-based. And it was 
awesome. I went into art because that's just what I've always mm-hmm. been drawn to. That's what I've always loved. That's what I was always where my talents have always laid. Um, so yeah, I did. I did. Went to Ottawa U and graduated after my four years. And I um, was a artist instructor for a long time, teaching kids classes, fun classes um, at an art gallery. Uh, working at art galleries, a few different ones along the way. I'm just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I, I, I've done some commissions and things like that, but it was never, um, it never interested me as much as um, working with other people. Like being isolated in a studio was mm-hmm. never as interesting to me as just using my artwork and interacting with other people. So um, along the way, I ended up volunteering at a camp for kids with cancer so that I could use my art skills mm-hmm. and, and teach teach some basic skills and just use use the gifts that I had to to help out and uh, I ended up loving it and realizing there was more happening when they were making art um, when they were coming into the art space and having conversations with me or with each other and just sort of letting their guard down and feeling really free and expressing themselves. I just, it started to make me realize that it was, it wasn't an art class. It wasn't mm-hmm. art lessons. It was, um, a really important processing time for them. And that's what led me to investigate art therapy. Mm-hmm. And then I became an art therapist and here I am. <laughs> um, you just went to a conference in Montreal. I did. Um, for, uh, so it was the, um, annual Canadian art therapy association conference that they run every single year, uh, for the last 39 years. Oh, wow. It was really great. And so, uh, art therapists and professionals from across Canada came to Montreal. It's in a different location every year. And I was lucky enough to present my thesis work at the conference, nice. uh, which was really, really great opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was a three days in Montreal with all kinds of professionals, uh, doing workshops, pr- uh, paper presentations, sharing their sharing their work and collaborating. Mm-hmm. What was your thesis on? Uh, so my thesis was a eight-week art therapy group that I conducted with uh, bereaved children. So I had four children whose fathers had all passed away from cancer. Mm-hmm. And um, we did eight weeks of art therapy to see if it was a research project just so to see if art therapy was effective in helping them to reconcile their loss so nobody ever gets over or mm-hmm. moves on from a death but that loss then becomes incorporated into who they are and their identity right. and, and their future functioning so i wanted to see if art therapy was a helpful way for them to process their process their grief and um and then I wrote I, my results were based on um, their feedback, their mother's feedback, and then the, observing the artwork that they created over that time. Is there a reason that you picked? I mean, I don't know if you picked, but is there a reason that you chose that group of kids? Yeah, um, my intention wasn't specifically um, the death of a father or, or cancer or anything like that. The, the it was specifically bereavement, and mm-hmm. so. Uh, they were open to having any loss relationship. So it could have been anybody in their lives from any type of death. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just by coincidence, oh, which was really, really interesting. And that's a whole other, um, a whole other aspect to observing like the research of why was it fathers and why was mm-hmm. who, how mothers are really seeking support for children. And Mm -hmm. it it was, it was really interesting, but that just happened to be a coincidence. Um, but the reason I wanted to work with bereavement and with children in particular, um, is, is two parts. So through my time, um, volunteering at Mm -hmm. this camp, I've experienced a lot of bereavement with children and it's, it's just, something that I've come to realize is such an intrinsic part of life. 
And it's going to happen to everybody. Everybody, death is is going to happen to everyone. Um, and sadly, just because you're an adult and you're, or you're an old age isn't the natural progression of everyone's lifetime. Some kids pass away, like our lives are all on different, um, timelines. And so I've just been really, um, aware of this for a long time. And even before I've, I've had a lot of, uh, experienced a lot of death of very young people in my life. Mm -hmm. And so then being comfortable with talking about death and realizing it's something that we all have to experience. And it's so taboo in our culture. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking that I think we need more discussions around it. We need more research around it. We need more openness around it. Um, is one aspect of being really interested in bereavement. And then the reason I decided to focus on children as opposed to adults was that, um, just the research shows that when children have, um, things happen in their in their childhood that are unresolved, their ability for resilience into adulthood is lessened. So if you have any kind of traumatic event happen in your childhood and it's never worked through, then the chances of you having illness, mental illness, physical illness, um, or self-esteem issues, any range of difficulties in adulthood is increased Hmm. significantly. Interesting. So my thought was I really wanted to work with bereavement. So why not work with kids at a, at a really impressionable age where there are, they're already, they're old enough. But my kids that I worked with were between eight and 12 years old. Mm-hmm. So they're old enough to have intelligent conversations and start to really understand mm-hmm. that death is permanent they're starting to really understand mm. that this is a loss, but they're still young enough where they're developing their skills, they're developing their intellect, they're developing a super critical age. Right. Super de- critical. Yeah, for development. Super critical age. Yeah. So um, those are the reasons why I chose bereavement and then working with the kids. Right. Yeah. So, so speaking on this on your thesis level, because mm-hmm. this is obviously a very sensitive subject and has a lot of emotional baggage like yeah. with it. It has, I'm sure it wasn't like easy to work with these kids and not feel emotional yeah. some days. Yeah. How do you then take all of that information and all of your experience working in the room with these kids mm-hmm. and break it into a research paper such as a thesis? It's a really good question. Without, <laughs> without having your emotions on your sleeve and writing with any sense of bias or yeah. any sense, mm-hmm. speaking strictly yeah. from a research perspective, I imagine it's extremely challenging to write. That's a really, really great question. And it's a loaded question. So there's so many aspects mm-hmm. to it. Um, strictly speaking from a research point of view, uh, there are different um, pieces built into the research. So from the, from the very start, I had to go through an ethics review board to ensure that working with human subjects, my project was ethically sound and that Mm. it, that in itself was a really big step. And so any little minor concern of anything that they had along the way, I would have to build in, um, safety precautions or different aspects to protect, confidentiality and their, their rights and everything. So, um, the way that looked was going back and forth between the ethics review, my school, myself, my, my advisor and building from start to finish before I even got into the room Mm -hmm. with these kids, um, steps for making this, uh, the best experience for, those individuals. So building in, um, how all the information was stored, how Mm. it was, how it was, um, received, how confidentiality, how, uh, consent gets taken in. And so every step of the research process Mm -hmm. was, was well, well planned out and well thought out. And then in terms of bias coming in, I had, in addition to my thesis advisor who was overlooking my 
just like the, the clinical work, the research, right. what I was bringing in. I had a supervisor who I would bring um, my thoughts of what was happening in the space. I would show her pictures of what was being created and getting to talk to her about what was happening in the space. Uh, her being a support for me, mm-hmm. but also her being a second set of eyes on work where she might see, she might have input. She has a lot more experience than I do. <laughs> um, she's absolutely phenomenal uh, art therapist and person. And so she was really supportive in that. And then, um, yeah, just making sure that I was following all of those guidelines and all of those steps to right. step back. And there, I mean, things like these are clients. So everything's on a professional level. There's no contact outside of a professional level, Mm -hmm. like all those standard things that you would, you would Mm -hmm. have as part of therapy. But, um, yeah, there was definitely, um, all of those things built in from the beginning and there's always bias with research, but, um, they were built in the planning process as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Right. Is that? Yeah, it does. I just can't imagine like sitting at a computer and writing. I mean, how long was your thesis? Like 20 pages. 20 pages? 100 pages. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with the biography or without? <laughs> You're right. I had, I had a lot of references. Exactly. <laughs> Graduate level. <laughs> Use a lot of references for that so reason. many references. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. I just can't imagine like sitting at a computer and even in my work, which isn't as heavy as, mm-hmm. you know, something as bereavement. Mm-hmm. I, there's like, we go through the, you know, the list of like things you shouldn't be doing your thesis, things you shouldn't mm-hmm. be doing in these and like, don't get emotional. Don't be this, don't be that. And like, even that you have to be aware of it. So something that's as heavy as that, I can't imagine having to break that into, you yeah. know, like having to like, yeah, just use. Yeah. The wording um, is always challenging. For sure. And I mean, I'm human yeah. and these kids are human and mm-hmm. I loved them. They were just sweet and I'm there be like, I'm compassionate towards them right. and I, I want to help them. And of course, along the way, I just really felt for them right. and wanted to be there for them. But as a professional, there's always a way of stepping back. And I think the most important thing in any type of, um, therapeutic relationship or professional relationship is the ability to step back mm-hmm. and have my own self-care, my own tools for having a, a having a hard day or mm-hmm. one of the kids having a really hard day or having, uh, having a trigger. And in the space, I'm trained to deal with that in the space, right. but then, and I can be really professional, but then when everybody leaves and I'm done my notes and I go home, how do I not let it affect me as a person mm-hmm. when these little kids are pouring out their heart about how much they miss their daddy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How I can, I can be a professional in the room and I know what I know what I can know what they need and, and know how to support them and know how to work through what they're going through. But then at the end of the day, how do I be a human right. at the end of the day and still mm-hmm. want to have those emotions? But how do I separate but still right. allow for the space. The so balance of it. I think, yeah. I think it's just really important to have um, my own supports around me and to be able to, uh, my network of friends, especially my friends who are also art therapists. My, I have two classmates that uh, we are such supportive friends mm-hmm. and we met at school and we've all finished and we're all still in this peer support network. And those two people were my, um, were my resource. I'll call them up at the end of the day and we can talk about things. They, they understand the process and Mm -hmm. helping me in, in addition to having a supervisor or somebody to, in a professional way to, to talk about these things, but really having that personal support with other people who are in it as well, who are also going through that and having their perspective is super important and Mm -hmm. super helpful. So a peer, I think a peer network is one of the most important things to have during that type of work. It it 
family and friends are super key, right. but having, having people that can know also live that experience yeah. is and really just critical. listen without you having to explain anything. Yeah. 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 Or give me the advice that I need to hear that. Not want to hear. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that's probably with every profession. Like when you are peers, yeah. you're in it together and you, it's the same live experience, lived experience. Totally. So yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to something you said a little while ago. Um, How do you deal with the issue of consent when you're dealing with children? Yeah. Um, So to give you an example of exactly how it went through Mm -hmm. with, um, with my thesis work. So um, the ethics board board had to review every line of every word in my consent form. Okay. So I had a written consent form for the guardians. In this case, all of them were the, the children's mothers. Yeah. Um, so it outlined the project, the goals of the project. Uh, it outlined their rights. So if they chose not to be part of the project in any way or withdraw, they could do that any time. It talked about confidentiality, that everything was confidential to me mm-hmm. and my supervisors. Um, names wouldn't be used, how, how things were stored, um, how the information was going to be used, everything. It went through every aspect of the project. And so during an intake meeting, part of my, um, one of the guidelines for my project was that, um, these kids had to be at sort of like a cognitive level of eight to 12 years Mm -hmm. old. So they needed to be able to be participating with the other kids their age, um, at the same level. So, and then they also needed to not be, I was kind of screening for trauma as well. They needed to be able to be in a space with other kids talking about their dads and emotions come into play all the time, but Mm. they needed to be able to be in a space and not be really triggered Mm. and really traumatized by them talking about death or other people talking about death. So the first step was having an interview and going through all these things. So I sat down with the mom and the participant and we went through the whole, um, the whole, uh, consent form Mm -hmm. and talked about everything front to back. And then it, then mom would sign off on the consent and then she would leave the room and I'd have a one-on-one conversation with the child Mm -hmm. because if they don't if their mom wants them to participate that's great but if they don't want to participate that's also really important so Mm -hmm. i don't need written consent for a child i need written consent from a parent and then verbal consent from a child so we need we went through i gave them a little like um because because part of the research was filling out a survey so i could um uh, note what the survey looked like at the very beginning, all about the, like their emotions, how they were feeling. Mm-hmm. And then the same survey was middle and then at the end. So they filled out their survey, said that they did or didn't want to be part of the, um, part of the process. They filled out these surveys alone. Without... Mom was in the next room. Okay. Um, so mom was there, but it mm-hmm. was just me and the kid one-on-one having a conversation and talking about art therapy, them filling out their form without mom looking over their shoulder without, right. so that they really had their privacy. And they were also told like, mom doesn't get to look at this page. So this is purely confidential. Right. Um, and so built that like really building trust. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I received informed consent from parents. Mm-hmm. And then once that was signed off, was able to receive consent from the kids as well. Right. And then throughout every group, they were always reminded they could share as much or as little as they wanted to. Nothing mm-hmm. was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, everything was welcomed in the group. They could say what they want. They could say nothing. So just giving them that constant reminder of they were in charge of how much they, they shared or didn't share. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. It's cool. And very interesting. Yeah. Art therapy is cool, man. Yeah. Were there any people in your class that were focused on um, art therapy in terms of movement, or was it more painting, drawing? Um, movement, dance, drama is. It's really interesting because art therapy and expressive arts therapy are essentially the same thing, but for some reason they've sort of 
branched off into two different things. Whereas when we say art therapy, most people just think visual arts related. And then expressive arts therapy tends to be all of the other arts combined. And although music therapy also tends to be its own own practice. Interesting. Hmm. So it's really, it's really interesting. So it all falls under the same category technically. Um, but I tend not to use dance and movement and drama and play therapy, which is all really connected only because I have a background as a visual artist. And so, um, my school, the Toronto art therapy Institute is very focused on visual art because, uh, uh, we also have, um, create in Toronto, which is creative expression and they're more movement and dance and everything. Um, but what's really interesting about that is, uh, as I was going through the process of school, the, um, a new college was put into place in Ontario. So it's the, um, the certified registered psychotherapist of Ontario. Psychotherapy has become a reg, a registered practice so not anybody can call themselves a psychotherapist and it protects the public how new is that uh 2015 that's crazy uh when i I started january 2015 and april 2015 the this was all sort of put into place so as i was doing my schooling everything was evolving and changing so what's different now is the toronto art therapy institute is now a uh is recognized by the college College of Registered Psychotherapists of Ontario, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, Create is not. So anybody who's coming out of Create cannot call themselves a registered psychotherapist. Mm. Um, and because of CRPO, if you call yourself a therapist in any form, you're you're subject to fine legal yeah legal yeah, issues legality. because it's a um just say like nurses right occupational therapists massage therapists there has to be a governing body so that the the level of i'm gonna put in quote service exactly is up to standard and right. protecting people exactly yeah. so that was a really hard thing to navigate while i was in school because it was changing every day mm-hmm. and we didn't know and I ended up becoming registered before my school ended up becoming certified. So I'm a registered psychotherapist, but I'm considered qualifying because I haven't written my full entrance exam and I don't have all of the hours yet to, that you need, I think, a gazillion client <laughs> contact hours. Yeah. Um, so because I'm still fresh out of looking for work. I don't have all of those hours I need, but, um, I think I'm writing my exam in May. So I'm okay. a registered psychotherapist, but I'm qualifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and even just using that title is how you use your title is really important. So it's been, it's been a really strange process <laughs> and a really challenging process. And even all of my supervisors and advisors and all the people that were supporting me throughout placements, before, while I started my placements, they weren't psychotherapists and then they had to do their, then they were, so it was, it was quite a challenge, but, um, Mm. so yeah, I think this stemmed from your question about movement, movement and different therapies. So, um, they're so beneficial, Mm -hmm. all different types of, because everybody's a different type. Every person learns differently, expresses Mm -hmm. themselves differently. There's all types of ways to express yourself. Mm. So I personally don't, um, don't really use a lot of movement, but I see the value in it. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think like art therapy is so emerging and still so new. And I see a place for that being really important. And I'm hoping that Mm. expressive arts therapies will be able to Mm. also this, this school in Toronto will also be able to get their certification. Right. I can like speak from experience, just like being a dancer. Yeah. That it's like obvious. It's helped me move through a lot of things in my life, mm-hmm. and like helped, like grounded me and reminded me of important things. And just like, yeah. So, well, there's also like specific, um, like movement theories and specific movement techniques that really help that uh, are used inside the hospitals and in, within yeah. lots of people like Lobbins used a lot and mm-hmm. mitzvah and all these ones that are really 
helping you move from a specific place. Right. Um, like but that would probably be practices. more for people that are struggling with physical disabilities mm. probably than, well, although it is quite meditative. I don't yeah. know. Somatic practices are super meditative. Right. 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 So totally. I'm interested to ask you, um, how has your art practice changed over the last few years? Yeah. Deciding to be moving away from like a freelance commissioner painter mm. and then moving into and painting what you want to do yeah. <laughs> compared yeah. to now. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I always tell my clients, like, it's not about the product. It's about the process. Mm-hmm. And I'm finding that a lot in my own art now, whereas before I would create a painting that was supposed to look a certain way that was, you know, a finished piece. I'd get a huge canvas and I'd use, usually I like working from photographs. So I'll have something with an intended outcome. And now when I'm picking up art supplies, it tends to be just me throwing in all my supplies on a table and doing something that's really abstract or expressive and not meant to be seen just playing with materials and exploring different materials and um just doing it for the sake of doing it and finding my own art therapy practice within that um and i'm not good at this but one of my goals is to when i do have when i do see clients afterwards do my own art making just to like process that experience and that also ties in with how how do you stay disconnected but connected with what's going on in the therapy space is you really need that you need that time to process things on your own as a therapist and um so yeah, my artworks really, really become more free and expressive and just process based, I would say. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it's just, you know, in a, in a sketchbook now and it's just, it's not on my walls. It's just for mm-hmm. me. Right. Mm-hmm. Do you think you'll ever take a commission again or? Um, yeah, it, I, I'm not opposed to it. Yeah. Um, I, I just cleared out my studio space so that I could start making some more work, which was really great. Now that I'm not in school and I'm I'm finding I'm having a little bit more time for myself. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I love painting. I love, I love making art. And if I had an opportunity to do that, that would be great. And, but that's really part that this is your whole theme of your podcast (laughs) is like, how do you do all of these things when art making in itself or being an artist, which is such a passion project, doesn't always necessarily pay all your bills. And so balancing having to have a full-time job and having to be a waitress to make ends meet, mm-hmm. well, then where do you find the time to create a painting for somebody else or for yourself? It's insanity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, do you sleep ever? Do you like... That's that. Right. Do you sleep? Do you take care of yourself? Do you yeah. eat properly? Do you exercise? Do you go outside in the sun? Do you like, spend time? Yeah. Yeah. Do you spend time with your friends? Yeah. Yeah. He can't time is finite, right? Yeah. I think what I'd like to do is more on my, I've been thinking about recently is rather than starting a commission, just all the p- fun pieces that I'm making for myself to experiment, just trying to like sell them to get rid of them, sell them because mm. I did, I did what I wanted to do. I don't need to hang on to them and they're accumulating at this point. Mm-hmm. So right. just kept, and they don't have to be for like a huge price just so that somebody else can right. enjoy them. So maybe that's what I need to start moving on to is figuring out a way to just sell it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But not making something to sell. Yeah. Right. But right, just, right. and rather than just giving things away, just make an Etsy page. Yeah. That, and then when right. you're out of it, I was literally like, I was like, Hmm, let's build Laura website. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> and it was the other thing years ago I did that. I was making jewelry and I was selling jewelry and I was going to craft fairs and things, but that's a full time job. In yeah. Itself. Yeah. So it has to be, so yeah. Like, most of those craft fairs are not cheap to get no. into. You have to like sell so much product to make yeah. it. Yeah. Make it. Yeah. My aunt and uncle are visual artists out of Red Deer and they were thinking about coming into the one of a kind show and they oh, were just wow. like it doesn't make sense for us how much is it it's like thousands of dollars to like i think it was like five grand or seven grand the entry fee yeah i'm like i don't know if that's right but like i remember it being crazy and they're mm-hmm. 
ceramic artists, so all of their shit is heavy. They would have had to like drive oh, it out. Oh yeah. god, that does not make any yeah. sense at all. No. But yeah. they're like, you have to have so much product too because yes. you're not allowed to run out. Yep. If you run out, they don't let you back in the show. Yep. So you'd have to bring so much. You'd have to sell so much. They'd have to put themselves up here, like. But it's like one of the biggest shows yeah. in Canada. So it's like, right. you want to be in, but it's like. Yeah. I talk to the vendors because I go every year and I always chat with all the vendors. It's my favorite part. Me and my mom go and we're just like, is this your first time at the show? Tell us, how's it going for you? Tell us what you're making. We're big nerds. And um, a lot of them say it's their most um, lucrative couple weeks of the year and some of them can survive just on what they sell mm. at the one-of-a-kind show it's so so lucrative yes. but that means you're working the entire year to build up your supply mm-hmm. and and this means all you're doing full-time even if you're only there for a couple weeks your full-time life is still building an inventory to get to that right. spot so it's, but a, full, also it's like, a full-time job. Yeah. Yeah. But you also like get a lot of vacation time. Like that's like people that are like, <laughs> I mean like people that are like at my like who like only work as the parks only open like yeah. four months of the year and they're like really only busy for two months. And then I'm like, cool. But like mm-hmm. you're working three months of the year and like the rest of the time you're like chilling. Like, <laughs> I like, you know, like it's hard four months and like, I'm not taking anything away from that, right. but also like just figure out like if that's yep. the balance and yeah. that's the balance. If that's what you want. If, yeah. if you want to work your butt off to get ready for that, but then be able to take off for six months. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or maybe not that much, but yeah, it's all about that. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) And that, that is the beautiful thing about having an unconventional job. Right. Right. Yeah. The beautiful thing about being an artist is you can create your own schedule and you do your, make your own time and you Mm -hmm. figure things out on your own. And I mean, really, I've been very lucky in a way to this point where I've been able to, not have a solid standard like time frame of every week. I've been able to have days off and mm-hmm. and go visit friends mm-hmm. and right. have time for myself, but that's not sustainable either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Sustainability. Crit. Uh, is being an artist fucking killing you? Laura. It's a struggle. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a struggle. Um, I'm really grateful that I've figured out a career path that potentially has a long-term uh, career path and long-term objectives and, and ability to move up and build and expand. Um, but I'm not there yet. And it has, it has been killing me for quite a long time. And I'd say it it ebbs and flows and it, it, yeah. it's all over the place. Um, even right now I'm only working one day a week as an art therapist on a contract position that doesn't pay the bills. So right. it's a struggle. It's a struggle every day. I hope I'll get to a place where it isn't. And that's where hope comes in. Yeah. <laughs> I, I truly believe in art. I truly believe in art therapy. I believe in expression. Um, I'm really passionate about it. So I'm going to make it happen the best I can, but yeah, it's, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. It's not killing me because I'm still here and I'm still, I'm still <laughs> fighting and I'm still kicking. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think I'll ever throw in the towel. If I haven't yet, I won't. And especially now that I'm on a path, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a challenge. Yeah. yeah. Great. Mm-hmm. Rewarding, but challenging. Amazing. Thanks, Laura. Thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you guys so much for listening this week. Um, We really hope you enjoy this episode. I hope you're having a great new year, 2019, baby. Get those grants in. (laughs) Get those grants in. (laughs) Although at this point, they might be, by the time we release this, it might be done. But Mm. anyway, thank you for listening. Um, (laughs) Go follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, do all the things. There's two shows coming up in February. We'll keep you updated. Thank you so much.